Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is the definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed his dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Tragsperts. I'm Barbara Bain. I'm Martin Landau. Join us here on Channel 11 for the most exciting new television show ever. Space 1999. The excitement never stops. The moon is hurled into outer space. Taking us and you into unlimited adventure. Come with us and our co-star Barry Morse. Space 1999. It's going to be a very good year. Right here on Channel 11. And are you ready? Not this week, we aren't. Are you ready to party like it's you're gonna bring that uh, up you gotta you come on it is it, it's, it's you know the great prince said, we're ready to break away indeed. into a new topic this week not to a black hole sun but to the black sun <laughs> we're ready to find the dragon's domain and bring you some wonder yes indeed the track experts are back in that jerry anderson universe space 1999 but to our credit we do find some star trek connections 
during this next interview. We're really right. happy. Not we got the rainbow done. connection. It's the Star Trek connection. Not the rainbow connection. Exactly. We got uh, re- a returning champion. Uh, he was a previous guest. We covered his uh, tenure on Starlog. That was David Hirsch from Starlog. Uh, he's back with a new book written by uh, Robert Wood with him. Uh, Hirsch and Wood uh, collaborated on to everything that might have been the lost universe of space 1999 with an introduction by story editor Christopher Penfold. It's a terrific new book. And, not to and be you confused know I must with, mean it because I didn't be, write it. Not to be confused with James Bond's favorite uh, golf ball, Penfold Hearts. <laughs> I play a Slazenger 7. That's right. So, uh, but, um, but uh, it's a terrific book about uh, space 1999, the Genesis, uh, um, everything about, um, the evolution of the show and ultimately where it didn't didn't go and we have a rather um deep dive with david and robert talking about the the show but we also uh have some interesting uh star trek adjacent facts as well and uh if, if you're a space 1999 fan or you're just curious about the state of television circa 19 mid 1970s this is a, i think a really interesting deep dive we Indeed. you know we've talked to people in the past about um Space 1999 with uh, John Kev Muir. And obviously we talked about, you know, we, we occasionally uh, mention it, but this is a really interesting look at the whole, you know, two. I mean, if we're the Trek experts, these guys were the 1999 experts. My God, the, the <laughs> knowledge that they have. I would, I just sat there and listened and I got quite an education on space 1999. Indeed. And so will you. When you listen to this great interview with the Trek experts with David Hirsch and Robert E. Wood, and here they come now landing on their Eagle transporter. So guys, welcome. Once again, we find ourselves talking about space 1999 on a Star Trek podcast. I don't know how that keeps happening, but, <laughs> but it does. David, welcome back. Robert, good to, good to see you during this, uh, this renaissance in space 1999. And I want to, I want to talk about that because of course your new book to everything that might've been, uh, uh, has been out now for the last couple of months, but David, you've been busy. You've also been consulting on, the uh, yep. Moonbase Alpha, the new yeah. technical manual. It, it just seems, and there's the space theater, nice, which is I I don't think it's region free, which I haven't, so I haven't gotten it. It's yeah. in uh, what David's holding up for those of you not watching on video. Uh, all the the movie um, edits have been released on Blu-ray, right? Uh, in across the pond, and mm-hmm. it's a gorgeous box. So um, you I, consulted I got on the- that. I got the version of the uh, Moonbase Alpha uh, technical uh, manual in the fancy uh, oh, the carrying case. case and everything. All, uh, so the, I'm very uh, excited about that. Pills. That's right. <laughs> now, there's also a, a book. I got a few here just in case. Nice. <laughs> there, there's also a book that came out, which you guys weren't involved with, uh, Space 99, The Archive, I believe it's called. The Vault. And, the Vault. And the reason I mention that is because it, <laughs> the year is 2022. Space 1999 has been off the air for over 50 years, right? 50 years. Well, yeah. A little less, but close. A little less than 50 years. Yeah, yeah. And 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 yet it seems as though for some crazy reason, we're going through a bit of a Space 1999 renaissance. If you're a Space 1999 fan, all these fantastic books uh, are suddenly landing, uh, uh, you know, uh, much like an eagle. All and, from uh, a show set in the future of 23 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us, <laughs> you know, why, how, I mean, David, when you were on the show the last time you talked a little bit about, you know, your relationship with uh, Jerry Anderson and how working on Starlogs to sort of stoke your passion for Space 1999. I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, Robert's thoughts on 
uh, Space 99 and why now this is all happening. Yeah, I mean, I guess you just can't keep a good show down. Uh, <laughs> it actually, it is a renaissance right now. I mean, just the sheer amount of merchandise as well, not just books, but, you know, eagle toys and, and hawks. And, you know, there's a lot of merchandise, action figures and, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge amount of stuff. And I don't know necessarily why, other than that the internet has brought people together in a way that they couldn't before, you know? So fans are banded together. They've, you know, the show is being broadcast now, you know, in the UK on uh, a channel that was called the Horror Channel. I think they've rebranded recently, but um, so the show is airing. It's had, you know, remastered Blu-ray releases everywhere. And uh, there's a big following, yeah. you know? I love that on AVOD here in the States, uh, a couple of the AVOD platforms have literally a Space 1999 channel where they just show Space 1999 24 yeah. hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and for me, it's like, of course, like you I have all the Blu-rays and everything, but I end up watching it with the stupid commercials on the TV, even though I have that beautiful <laughs> Blu-ray uh, set that Chow Factory did a few There's years something ago. watching something either streaming or on uh, broadcast that makes it feel uh, more real than putting in a disc. I, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's a, a callback to when we used to watch it on TV and it was there and we had no control over it. Uh, but I think there's something a little magical about that. I think we had to pay more attention to it. You know, you, if you looked away, you missed something and you couldn't really go back. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I still remember the days where you would watch a show and if you missed an episode, you had to wait half a year for the rerun. Right. Yeah. Yeah, if you were lucky, because sometimes a show would be canceled and there would be no reruns. Yeah. Which was even more frustrating. Yeah. You know, if you missed an episode or you just loved something and you wanted to see it again. Um, you know, with Planet of the Apes, you had to wait for those, uh, you know, love and pursuit, uh, yeah, life, liberty, all, and pursuit on the Planet of the Apes. Movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to ask you the genesis of, of this specific book to everything that might have been. The Lost Universe of Space 1999. And it's so great because it, it talks not only about the genesis of uh, Space 1999, but also where, you know, it, it, it could have gone and the, the road's not taken. So can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, sort of the, the origin of the book and then sort of diving into it and, you know, all these great archival things. It's such a treasure trove of well, memos and information and stuff. Well, you know, Years ago, uh, most people's lifetimes ago, um, when I was doing the original Alpha Tech Notebook, I had a lot of access to the archives at ITC New York. And there came a point where they were starting to basically clear out stuff that they felt they didn't need anymore. And they gave me access and allowed me to take away a lot of paperwork that was uh, there, including scripts. Um, I had... I got from about five or six different versions that were written for Breakaway, the first episode. Uh, and uh, as we explain in the book, Space 99 started out really as the second series of UFO, which right. was something that, uh, you know, people had known about, but there wasn't much documentation. Um, a lot of work went into this show. And when the ratings in the United States started to peter off around midway through the uh, running of the of the series um they got cold feet and said we don't want to do the show so all this work had been done and jerry pitched the idea of doing another series using the material that they'd already created 
So that's where Space 99 came off because there was always the idea that UFO Series 2 was going to be set completely on the moon. Um, the thing that's fascinating to me about this is, I mean, we all know from even way back with Stephen Winfield's making of Star Trek that TV shows have a genesis. The creator starts out with one idea, there's input, and it gets changed. And between design work, practicality, you know, can we shoot this? Do we have the money? Uh, the actors that are brought in, things always evolve. And here was a fascinating uh, study about how this show evolved from one series into this over the course literally of a year. Because a genesis, lot of this... The genesis of the book uh, started with that material that David had from the ITC archives. And um, it was at a convention uh, David, where David and I met for the first time in person at uh, the convention in what? 2017, the, 2017. the Alpha one in, um, uh, what was what was that lovely name um, in New Jersey? Was it Persippany? Persippany that <laughs> Jamie Anderson could not say. Yeah. What is it? Parsippity. And they got Parsipani or something like that. Right. Uh, we did a little video there with Nick Tate trying to explain to them how to, how to uh, spell it. But I, I discussed this material with Rob and I said, well, I got all this stuff and uh, I don't know what to do with it, whatever. So when we got together again two years later for the breakaway convention in Pennsylvania, I brought all the stuff. I loaded it into the car and I brought it down. And I said, what do you think? What can we do? So I said to him, why don't you take the stuff home with you, look it over, see what ideas we came up. And one of the pluses was one of the guests at the convention was Christopher Penfold. Right. Christopher originally was hired to be the story editor for UFO 2 since Tony Barwick, the original story editor, was tied up on the protectors. So when the show became this big multi-million dollar production with Martin Lando and Barbara Bain, he was pushed aside slightly for an American writer because as the budget increased, ITC New York got more and more involved in the show. And that's one of the things we document in the book, how they were really constantly trying to undermine a lot of the stuff that was going on. And a lot of things that went wrong with the show, especially later, were cause of their interference. Um, they brought in an American writer named George Bellack, uh, who had not really done science fiction, but he was a very good screenwriter. He and Chris got along terrifically. Uh, to this day, Chris will uh, Chris wrote a beautiful piece in our book uh, about uh, George. And George did the Bible for the show uh, and spent a lot of time writing the first episode. But his vision of the show conflicted with Jerry Anderson. So the end result was, George departed and Chris essentially got the job back to be uh, in charge of the writer's room for the show. Right. And he brought in Johnny Byrne, Edward DiLorenzo, all the other writers who, who worked uh, primarily on the first series. Uh, it, it just meeting Chris, I, I really always enjoyed a lot of his writing. He did the second series of the tripods. Um, Johnny Byrne, became story editor of all, the original All Creatures Great and Small and then brought Chris in the way Chris had brought him in to, to work on that show. And 
I, I really wanted the opportunity to try and write something with with Chris and Bob and I brainstormed the idea of making it easy for Chris to help us uh, with this book. So we had a lot of input from him, um, you know, trying to recall stuff that happened 45 years ago and happened yeah. in a in a major rush because uh, there were a lot of conflicting thoughts in his head. Um, for example, uh, Black Sun. The fantastic futuristic space station Alpha has a near miss with a phantom planet. But the ship's good fortune turns to misfortune when it's thrown off course, careening directly towards a black sun. We'll all be dead in three days. Martin Landau and the Alpha crew are headed for a crash course in discovering the universe's oldest secret in what may be their final voyage. Space 1999, Journey Through the Black Sun. We had the original script that David Weir wrote for Black Sun, which is a phenomenal script, but it's completely unfilmable. Hmm. There was just no way with the technology that was available at the time that they could have done the visual effects that he describes in the script. So Chris came in, he did a rewrite. He thought he had done a major rewrite. And then I sent him the script and he's like, wow, I didn't change as much as I thought I did. <laughs> but what Chris, what Chris brought to the script was the um, he, he toned down the visuals so that it was something that could be done on the budget and with the especially with the technology they had at the time. Right. But he also, because the characters had evolved slightly, he was able to write more for the characters. David Weir concentrated more on two characters in his script, where Chris was able to bring in a lot of the background characters have them more active and understand, you know, understanding the entire situation that was facing them, this possible ultimate death. So you could see as the scripts evolved, um, we had Art Wallace's original uh, script, The Siren Planet. Uh, Art Wallace was famous for writing a lot of Dark Shadows. Yeah. And Art wrote a really good script that had they had the time to develop it, could have been a really good horror script for the show because later they did some horror but it was a script that threw in was thrown to johnny burns lap and said we need an episode two right away you've got to change this to fit what we can do and johnny johnny actually took a metaphysical uh, uh approach to it where art wall's script was i wouldn't say really horror so much but it could have been a creepy episode because he had a an it alien. Very, that could... It was very Solaris like. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. There was a lot of parallels to Solaris. Yeah. And, so, and uh, we all know IT, you know, ITC was really looking for Tarkovsky in their sci-fi. They wanted uh, that petty cerebral yeah. science fiction. The well, other, that was actually uh, that was actually more of the production team really wanted that. Uh because when you listen to Chris and you and you look at what they were writing they were really attempting to take what was, they were stuck with this format mm -hmm. because this was what uh, ITC New York Abe Mandel wanted. Right, he wanted right. no stories that took place on earth. So it went from, well, we're going to blow up the earth. No, that's too scary. Okay. We'll blow up the moon. Okay. I could live with that. <laughs> so now you got a moon bouncing around like an intergalactic ping pong ball and everybody knows. Yeah. This is not exactly a realistic format, but this is what we're stuck with. So the writers come in and 
the writers start coming up with ways to sort of massage this. Mm -hmm. And that's where Chris and Johnny Byrne really started doing a lot of metaphysical stuff. But even David Weir, very early on, his script is really just drenched with this whole idea of some cosmic intelligence manipulating their future. The other and that's thing about something the, that I locked onto. If I can go back a little bit, the other thing about the genesis of the book um, was that after you know I saw the stuff that David had in his collection, the uh, synchronicity of the timing was such that unfortunately Martin Landau had recently passed away, mm. and um, his estate was going to be selling some of his items at a sale in L.A. So I went to that sale, and I was lucky enough to get a box of paperwork. Um, that had a lot of Space 929 stuff in it because Martin was a terrific hoarder and we are very, very <laughs> grateful for that. And um, so we had all kinds of amazing documentation in there, correspondence and things that had been essentially lost over the decades and nobody ever had seen again, but legendary things like Johnny Burns' uh, critical commentary of the first season. It's legendary within, you know. The Space family. 1999 community. Well, yeah. I want to ask you, I mean, one of the things that's so great, you know, a lot of the reporting on Space 1999, it was contemporary, contemporaneous with the making. You know, it was all very positive, obviously, because you're writing about the show, you have access, you're not going to be honest. But what's so interesting, and, you know, look, you, you always hear, you know, the, the stories Gene would tell about, oh, dealing with the network. But, you know, Jerry was not only dealing with the network, he was dealing with the studio, you know, with Lou Grade. He was dealing with the, the network, quote unquote, the syndicator, well, ITV, yeah. and two huge stars. You know, it right. wasn't like they were discoveries. You had two stars with giant egos as well. So, I mean, it's such a balancing act. And I think you guys do a good job of just talking about how all that came to bear on you know, it's amazing that Space 1999 is as good as it is, given everything that was working against it. Well, it's not surprising that that by the time they got to Dragon's Domain, that Chris basically left the show. He just was burned out because there was just so many rewrites that had to be done to please everybody. Um, I remember the classic story that, that I was told to by, by Abe's son, Bob Mandel, who I was friends with, that Bob saw the episode black sun and said to them don't do ever do that again nobody will understand this and they were very proud of black sun uh, right. the end result um the funny thing was when they did guardian of peary they freaked out about the set and said no it's too weird never do that again hmm. and yet it became you know, a, a cornerstone of their advertising campaign to show pictures of the set. Yeah, the, it, it, he got uh, Keith Wilson, who designed it, got so many compliments and 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 and, and kudos from designers all over the world yeah. about it. So it, it just this is this is why the second series became what it was because in order to do the second series, they Jerry essentially acquiesced to all the demands of ITC New York just to get the show off the ground. And it shows you what their mindset was versus the mindset of the people making it. Um, and, you know, people talk a lot about, obviously, and deservedly so, you know, when Marshall Lucas was gone from Star Wars, you know, how you see how vital she was, her contribution yeah. was. Yeah. I wonder, uh, you know, if you could tell us when, when Sylvia left um, Space 1999, how you feel that impacted on the show. Well, Sylvia was like a like a buffer. Um, 
because Jerry's strength was always the technical side. He was never really, he was never really interested in the actors. He was never really interested in that part of the show. So Sylvia was the go-to. All the actors went to Sylvia. Um, she dealt with that end, uh, end of it. And I think her eye for visual and everything worked very well to it. I mean, everyone talks about how much they loved working uh, for Sylvia. Mm -hmm. um, once she left and Fred Freiberger was put in charge, essentially Jerry was just the line producer. Yeah. He didn't have as much input because he had been essentially just ground down so much by ITC New York. He said, okay, we're going to do it your way this time. Right. And it was a struggle that some of the late, you know, some of the better episodes of the second series were actually series one episodes that were left over mm. and then reformatted. Um, you could clearly see that uh, the first episode was originally written as the series one episode. The It was called The Biological Soul. Uh, the second episode, Exiles, also started off as a series one episode. And then it wasn't until later in the season that they had episodes like The Immunity Syndrome, which actually was a better episode that worked within the format, but there was, you know, a lot of infighting with some of the episodes. Um, uh, a, lot of the quality, a lot of the quality with the writing comes down to the story editor as well. You know, Fred Freiberger was a story editor in the second season, and he had obviously a sort of a hit list of his priorities um, in storytelling, you know, above all humor. Uh, was one of the key elements yeah. in his thinking, which I'm not sure why that's important in a serious science fiction series. But anyway, um, in year one, it was primarily uh, Christopher Penfold, who was the story editor for most of the season. And uh, so, you know, which writers do they bring in? Which stories do they take forward? The the story editor's uh, imprint on the writing, you know, they, they, they have a lot heavy hand in rewriting the scripts themselves as well. I so mean, what, one of the uh, one, one episode that really shows that through, uh, Chris has a writing credit on a later second season episode called Dorzak. But Chris will tell you it bears absolutely no resemblance to the script he handed in. Right. Because they completely rewrote it to fit what they wanted and they just left his name on it. It was one of those cases where, you know, nobody said, oh, I hate it. Take my name off of it. Right. I don't recognize it. I'm curious. I, I want to backtrack a little bit. Um, yeah. You mentioned the first uh, American story editor, George. George uh, Belloc. George Belloc. Um, Belloc. <laughs> that's funny. Um, but, George uh, Belloc, by the way, lived in the Ghostbusters building. Oh, well, that's cool. <laughs> okay, just because that has to be said. <laughs> <laughs> um, Interesting thing. We just love that idea, you know. To, to do with to do with uh, the, the the search for an American story editor, um, because this is the the Inglorious Trexperts uh, yeah. podcast. There is a Star Trek connection to that. Um, very big Star Trek connection, actually. There is, there is, which is in, documented in the book, um, whereby uh, they actually approached Gene Roddenberry to be the story editor for the series. And he declined, but he ended up being, because, you know, he was pursuing his own uh, pilots and things at the time. But um, he ended up being really, really helpful in the search for the American story editor and for American writers. And um, also in the book, uh, we have a letter from DC uh, Fontana, um, where she was basically putting herself forward uh, to be story editor or 
a script writer for right. the series as well. Um, so those are kind of interesting little. How interesting would that have been? Um, but my question was: you you mentioned that uh, uh, George Bellick's um, uh, attitude toward the show was different than uh, 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 than Chris. the uh, producers, and how how was that? What was the what was the meat of that? I think one of the biggest differences is George had this idea that a lot of the drama should come from character conflict. So he sort of set up Moonbay South as a bit of a powder keg. The moon has become a vast, complex space station. Suddenly. Frightened. Blasted out of Earth orbit. Destined to journey forever, deeper and deeper into the unknown. Destination Moon Base Alpha, an epic adventure across the universe to experiences beyond the imagination of any Earth-bound human. Sensors pick up configuration of a spaceship. Heading. Directly at us. Arm all lasers! Destroy the alien ship! Nothing is impossible in the vast, uncharted dimensions of hyperspace. Where reality and illusion are the weapons. Tony! Guido! Tony! It means we can travel anywhere in the universe now. They're really here. Yes. How we can get back to Earth? Yes. Where human force and alien intelligence are the combatants. Two aliens have been dispatched for the nuclear trigger. Once they energize it, we will take our fill. All the alien creatures will die. Where human extinction on Moon Base Alpha may be seconds away. People were not happy with their situation. Um, it's only vaguely touched on in the show, particularly in the first season. There is a second season episode where a, a group of dissidents try and mutiny. Uh, which was the original title of the script before they changed it to Seance Spectre. Um, but George was much more focused on the characters since he really wasn't a science guy, but he put a lot of effort into trying to create as realistic an environment as possible. I right. mean, uh, the original story Bible spends a lot of time explaining the whole environment. Um, so he really, even without really much of a scientific background, he tried uh, to, to do something that was a drama, a grounded drama set in a science fiction setting. Right. Um, Jerry never had much character conflict in his shows. Uh, I mean, there was some in UFO, uh, but that could have been Tony Barwick's influence, but he and Tony Barwick, I think, had a different working relationship. Hmm. Um and, and one of the big problems with ITC's demand was trying to find American writers who were willing to relocate. Because right. you've got to remember, back in the early 70s, we didn't have the internet. 
Uh, we really didn't have faxes as, as prevalent as they are now. Right. So getting material back and forth, you had to book an international call. I mean, I mean, Chris Penfold told us how just how difficult it was dealing with a lot of American writers. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, so that was, me, yeah. you know, the gene at that point, you know, was 73, 74 was, you know, he was hard up for money at that time. So I'm, I'm actually, I find it fascinating that he kind of, you know, sort of rebuffed the overtures. Well, he, it was it, to be a story editor meant he wasn't producer. And I don't kind of a demotion for him like now. that idea. And it wasn't his show. Plus the fact that, again, there was the demand of relocating to England yeah. and not have wanted to do that full time. And plus, uh, why why would he want to go on a show that uh, for for many people was a step down from the original Star Trek? I don't think he would have done that just ego wise. Yeah, so well, I think that's, that's where it came down to. Ego. Yeah. This is an interesting thing, though, that also touches with what David was just talking about. Um, you know, space, when it began uh, in the development, uh, George Bellack's concept with the characters, the intercharacter conflict that was going to exist on Alpha. Um, but not just that. I mean, the, the, the entire concept of the series was initially very different than what it ended up being when it got on air. Yeah. It was, you know, there were a couple of titles uh, that they were considering, which kind of tell you more about the concept. One was uh, Space Intruders. Uh, another one was uh, Menace in Space. Mm. And so the idea was that these people were on the base, blasted out into space, struggling to survive at each other's throats in this sort of pressure cooker environment, but that they are the menace in space. Right. Mm. You know, that they, they are, are the aliens in every right. episode. I mean, that, that, had been, that was touched on in a lot of episodes, like War yeah. Games. Um, yeah. So it wasn't something they completely abandoned, but uh, we have one script in our book, which which was never filmed. And when you read it, it, it it's it's so out of place for what the show became. In fact, it's it's like not even not even our heroes are very likable in the story. It's it's, it's a, I, I described it as manifest destiny at, at its worst. Mm. Um, and. Um, it, it it just it would not have worked in the eventual format. I mean, they may have been able to make it work in the original, but I don't think in Jerry's mind that's where he wanted to go. He had his own ideas. Um, so it, it just because um, you look at look at a lot of his shows. I mean, he was very proud of UFO. His his favorite episode was the one Abe Mandel hated, which was Reflections in the Water, which dealt with uh not reflections of war sorry question of priorities which right where his son, son at, 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 yeah, at son dies yeah right it's a it's a t almost totally earthbound show right and uh eight mendel absolutely hated the show but of course it's considered one of the classics of the show mm -hmm. um so you know we're, we're talking about back in a time when basically the executives didn't understand science fiction it's it's quite different now that's why we have a prevalent of a lot of shows that are, you know, weird. Uh, I mean, look at a show like Westworld. It would it would not have flown back then. You know, the idea that you're four seasons in, seasons into it and you're still trying to figure out what's going on half the time. Um, executives didn't think that way. It had it was it was always you know uh, the uh, bad guy bad guy in the black hat comes into town, shoots the place up, and the and the white guy, the guy in the white hat. Uh, kills him at the end. Oh, that's a great story. It works. Right. 
That's how they thought. But do you think it was also sort of the British sensibility that this was infused with? Because, you know, it's so it's interesting because I think a lot of the local syndicators, you know, syndication channels thought they were getting, you know, Star Trek two. you know, they thought they were getting next, next yeah. Star Trek. They, a lot of them programmed it like PIX programmed it with Star Trek. And yet, you know, yes, they're both in space, but um, space 1999 is so much more weird and eerie and yeah. bizarre more, more than horror. Star Trek. And that, that, um, that's, I think one of the reasons why it's, it's more popular now because it's more in the norm. Right. All the weirdness that mm. that people. I mean, uh, classic story. The um, uh, final episode of The Prisoner. Caused a tremendous uproar when it first aired. And right. Patrick McGowan's attitude was, I want you to figure out your own ending. I want yeah, I you see. to decide how it's ending. And that had never been done before. Nobody understood that. And yet that's how shows are written now. You know, they're, they're written with big story arcs where you have to wait a long time to figure out what's going on. You know, I, I still sit and watch some stuff with my wife and going and she says, what's going on? Wait for it. Wait for well, it. To be it's honest, I think in, in a lot of those cases, the writers of the shows don't actually know where the show was going. So I think that <laughs> no, yeah, that, that can be we're uh, the blame. Lost. We're talking about let's make. Yeah, it right. Lost. Exactly. Um, but it it's it, re. Uh, Viewers now are much more, I think, savvy in science fiction. They 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 hunger to think things out. They want to be challenged. Um, back at that time in the '60s and and then the early '70s, shows were simpler, and I think they that's what they were used to. Sure. Uh, now we're into into a lot more stuff that we want to think about. We want new ideas. Um, I mean, I, you look back at the first series of space and it has such a flexible format because one week, you know, you have a war with an alien planet. The next week you have a guy being haunted by his own ghost, even though right. he's not dead yet. Yeah. Um, it really wasn't until next generation that they started doing bending the format in Star Trek, where they were doing episodes that were really just outside the norm. And People got used to that. They weren't going, oh, this is not like what I'm used to seeing every week. Well, we, we talked about this a little before, but I, I think that uh, a lot of Next Generation uh, relies on uh, reference to Space 1999 more than one would think. Well, I, th I think there was a lot of influence. You know, I mean, a lot of shows do even Star Trek does it to itself where they'll remake uh, a story from another series and they'll try and do something different. With right. it. you know, oh, right. the plot works. Let's do something different. So um, you you would see them pick up on some ideas, and, and that's fair because what you know the old story that there's only like about three different plots you could ever work with, and now let's right. do variations. I mean, Star Trek certainly did better with it than say, oh, there was an episode of Buck Rogers which was a total ripoff of Bringers of Wonder, and it was very clearly that. John, they're friends, Toby. They're not your friends, they're... They're horrible. Ugly, hideous. All right, now take it easy, John. It's all right. Listen, to me. just calm down. I gotta listen. Wait, now, listen to me. You'll be all right. Listen to me! You just calm Tony. down! Stay behind me. Stay behind me. Weapon section. 
Blazers. Destroy that alien ship. Weapon section of Fort Laser Gun. Damn you, Tony! I'm in command! effort at all it was actually a poor man's rip off of bringers of wonder <laughs> now what uh what was the trajectory that would have uh, happened on the show had it uh, uh gone on for another season or or more uh wh- where were they thinking of taking it well there were different trajectories at different points i mean you know when they finished production on the first season um there was a, a time gap until it aired uh, Johnny right. Burton continued to work with Jerry Anderson. Uh, they did another pilot called uh, Into Infinity, The Day After Tomorrow, um, with Nick Tate and Brian Blessed. Um, but also, Johnny Byrne wrote his critical commentary of Space 1989. Right. He, uh, you know, basically critiqued the entire series. And then they had executive meetings uh, with all the key people, you know, including Johnny Byrne, Jerry Anderson, Brian Johnson, uh, Charlie Crichton, Martin Landau, Barbara Bain, all these people. Uh, And what they did was they discussed where the series would go if it were to come back for a second series. They had a lot of interesting ideas that they were pushing forward, some of which get pretty close to where it ended up going. But but they were sticking with the year one format, you know, Professor Bergman, you know, the whole theme was essentially going to stay the same. The tone was going to stay the same, basically, but they were just tweaking, figuring out where, you know, they could kind of improve it instead of making huge changes. And then uh, the show premiered. Uh, Initially, you know, the ratings were terrific. Uh, the reception was, you know, largely terrific. I mean, critical reception was mixed, but, you know, um, such as often the case. Um, But uh, the thrust to bring in an American story editor, if it was to go to a second series, happened very quickly after the premiere of year one. And that was driven by ITC, you know, in New York, and uh, Abe Mandel. And um, if there was going to be a year two, it was going to have an American story editor. That was basically the demand, I think, that was coming from New York. Right. Uh, so Jerry went over, he found, you know, Fred Freiberger and the rest is history. Um, you get to the end of series two, but before the end, it was actually canceled during the filming of, um, I want to say Lambda Factor. I may or may not be right on that. I'd have to check. But, um, you know, the, the word came down that they were not going to be picked up for another series when they still had, you know, half a dozen episodes to produce, basically, of year two. So um, that letter's in our book as well, when Jerry Anderson told the crew about that. And uh, so there was never actually 
a, a period of being able to plan for what they would do if there was going to be a third series because mm. they were still in the middle of producing the second one. Right. Yeah. Word come, came down that they were being canceled. But also in our book, uh, there was talk of a spinoff series. And that happened after the show had been canceled. We've got a document. It had been rumored for years. Catherine Schell had said that there had been talk about her starring in a spinoff series. But nobody had any documentation about it until, again, Martin Landau's archive uh, turned up a letter um, documenting a few points, key points in a legal letter as to what that spinoff would contain if it were to happen. So there was wow. that. Well, that's fascinating because I, I, I remember watching a, uh, uh, some of the uh, documentary material uh, that was shot during the beginning of the second season and all the interviews of the actors all the actors were very uh quick to point out that this second series was going to have lots of humor and lots of action and uh they they said that like at least four Not or five like zombies times each well, <laughs> yeah. because, because that's 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 the party line to, yeah. to sell the show uh but i mean the second series the biggest hurdle that they had when they went to a second series was the time frame and shooting it Right. Uh, British shows generally shoot within a two-week period. That was always the norm. Uh, for Space Year One, that was the plan, but they had the luxury because they weren't meeting air dates to actually go back and do pickups. They spent an enormous amount of time shooting the first episode because they really didn't know the look and the feel of the show. And they basically gave Lee, Lee H. Katzen, the director, carte blanche to shoot it. Um, and then he turned in a, a cut that was allegedly uh, way too long. Um, although the, there never really was a script that was written as an overlong episode. It just ended up with all the coverage he shot and everything. It just paced out that way. So then they had to go back and do pickups and reshoots and re-edits in order to fit it down to the length they wanted. Um, but, you know, we put in our book... Um, I managed to reconstruct the shooting schedule and um there were they, they months later they'd go back to and pick up from an episode and say okay we're going to shoot the end um last enemy is one of those episodes that actually ran short and mm -hmm. they had to go back and pick up uh some major scenes uh later on they redid the ending because right. it just did it, it they needed to have something that worked better um other episodes they might dovetail because they had a set that was only built for one episode. And they said, oh, we can use this in one in another episode. The nuclear generating station mm -hmm. was built for Force of Life. And then they did a pickup scene for Alpha Child. So while they were still shooting one, they went into the other. But that was not the original intent. Series two, because it actually started late. It was supposed to start months earlier, but things didn't work out for one reason or another they had to uh shoot and multiple episodes what they call double up same time two units shooting so landau would would headline one episode and uh barbara bain would headline another and it was just to make the september air date mm -hmm. so it, it was breakneck pace so that's why a lot of scripts probably could have used an extra rewrite and and didn't get that luxury that time because they were fighting against the clock and even then they knew before they even started production 
that they were going to fall behind on yes. their American air dates, yeah. uh, on their deliveries to the American stations. And of course they did fall behind. Yeah. You know. I want to ask you, you know, a lot of people, they always say with Star Trek, um, you know, what would it have been like if it had been Lloyd Bridges or Rex Reason or, you know, all these people that had been yeah. on the, the short casting with, with the show, you know, had Jeffrey yeah. Star Hunter, you know, decided to, 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 to stay. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, there's so many other interesting uh, choices for Commander Koenig, you oh, know, yeah. some of which you talk about, you know, um, you know, and it, which included even Shatner. So, yeah. you know, but Bob Culp and, and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other, you know, uh, uh, paths and how they ended up with um, Martin and Barbara and why that was considered such a coup at the time, obviously? Well, because Mission Impossible was very popular and yeah. they oh, as the show were went through this little like hiccup in the middle of of development where they were going to do a half hour show because at the time that uh 7 seven thirty slot was given back to the local stations and they were hungry for a lot of syndicated programming that's why the protectors was half an hour you had um ivan tours who did sea hunt did a show called primus mm-hmm. with and lou gray uh, did the muppet show in that slot too right so that was that was a, a, a very lucrative slot, and they originally targeted for that. So Jerry and Sylvia wrote a half-hour script for the pilot, and then it, it grew into this multimillion-dollar series because they had their eye on trying to sell it to the U.S. network because that mm-hmm. was the holy grail. Um, they they did the ITC did even though they did very well with Supercar selling it to syndicated stations. When they got NBC to buy Fireball XL5, that was really money in their pocket. And that's what spurred them to spend the extra money to go color on Stingray Mm. because they wanted that American network. Uh, UFO was partially networked because CBS bought it for the stations they owned. Right. Like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago and stuff. So that was a bit of money in their pocket. So, But they wanted the whole network. And not only do they get more money for the show, it costs them less because they only have to supply one print. When you syndicate, you have to supply multiple prints. Right. And that's why the show got scrambled in the running order because New York would get one episode and then have to ship it to Chicago mm-hmm. where, you know, St. Louis might ship it their episode to somewhere else. So uh, some stations go from episode one to episode 23. Interesting. Um, the casting of uh, initially they were going to see Martin Landau and uh, you know, it was the search, uh, you know, that we didn't find any documentation on a casting search for the role of Dr. Russell. We found only documentation on the casting search for the role of commander Koenig. So they went to get Martin Landau or to talk to Martin Landau. Um, You know, Lou grade was very keen on, on, uh, Landau and Bain once, once, you know, it became obvious that if they were going to hire Martin, then he would have to move to London. Barbara would have to move to London. They had kids or married. And uh, so it just made sense. They were looking yeah. for an actress and she was a three-time Emmy award winning actress for Mission Impossible. So it just made perfect sense to, to cast her as well. And uh, so then they got, the two leads at the same time, basically. But yeah, and Lou Grade was was very keen on getting them. I mean, Robert Culp came very close to getting the role, but then he he told Jerry that, well, I'm a writer and director. 
And Jerry went, oh, I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> uh, and I had heard that um, uh, Catherine, oh, the name is for me. She was in Step of the Wives. Catherine. Uh, are you talking about Catherine Ross? Yes, Catherine Ross. Right. Originally uh, considered for Dr. Russell when they had Robert. Really? Yeah, interesting. But I, but I, I've never found any documentation. Oh, okay. No, I was told that by Bob Mandel oh, uh, okay. that that was under consideration at the time. Um, just, just her. But you know, I mean, it seems more logical that yeah, if they want Martin Landau, they have to have Barbara Bain. But the fact that the woman had three Emmy awards was a big coup, and again, a good selling point because yeah, yeah. it does show up in the original sales brochure that Bob's got right behind him. Her little right, Emmys right. are right there lined up. Hey, right. right. And of course, their their on-screen uh, connection was uh, n- not to be doubted. I mean, they no. work very well together. And, uh, you know, it, it, it almost is a, a, a almost a continuation of uh, Mission Impossible, just, uh, yeah. you know, seeing them go through those uh, stories. And it's yeah. so interesting, you know, the performances, the style of acting that was utilized in a lot of year one, particularly in Space Nine Two Nine, with with Landau and Bain. You know, there are, of course, there's some people who criticize them, I think, very unfairly, calling yeah. them, you know, wooden, uh, making fun, you know, because of Anderson's history with puppets and all that kind of thing. Right. But you know. It, they were way ahead of their time, I think, with the the kind of nuanced, subtle performances that they gave. You know, Barbara, particularly, if you were to take the same people who criticize, you know, Barbara Bain, for example, in Space Center Nine, and ask them what they think about Gillian Anderson in the X Files, right? You probably love Gillian Anderson in the X Files. Well, Gillian Anderson gave the same kind of performance that Barbara Bain gave. Very subtle, very nuanced. But it's interesting. They so, are they are film performances. They aren't yes. necessarily TV performances. Well, but so that's they are much smaller. Focus. Yeah, but they that was the focus of the first season. It Absolutely. Was Especially when the audience was, yeah. you know, for sci-fi on TV was kind of preconditioned to, you know, William Shatner um, and uh, playing things a little more broadly. Than, but it's, well, it, it's but interesting to, to yeah. just compare the performances of Gillian Anderson and uh, Barbara Bain about the size of TVs that existed when uh, when Gillian Anderson was in her show. Um, yeah. You know, it the performance comes across on a bigger screen much better, you know, yes. than on a, t- a tiny, you know, 19 inch black and white that I watched 1999 on. Yeah. Well, it's well, also, he, also the sound of the show. Uh, most American shows were like in your face. Right. And she's basically almost whispering a lot of her dialogue. Absolutely. You know, and it, and it it creates a very confined environment very yeah. well, which, which, which is one of the things that's really nice about the show had, had a great sound design. Um, but, you know, looking at any of the sixties, any of the Irwin Allen shows, the performances are very broad, very yep. out, you know, it, it, the, you got to get the drama out physically because the shows didn't have the ability to do a lot of the stuff visually. It all had to be done through the actors you know the the old classic star trek thing was yeah we look at the viewers say we see a spaceship and you just see a dot because you have to sell that because we can't do it well now you have a show where the technology allows them to show these things so the actors don't have to be as outgoing um they're trying to make things more moody i mean the lighting the camera work in the first series 
yeah. was was really uh, something you didn't see on television. Right. A lot. I less, want to talk about that. Theatric, a lot less theatricality. But you know, there was this whole idea of selling it as kind of you know something Starlight did too is you know the next Star Trek. But in a way, it was the next two thousand one. You know, well, what's remarkable are the production values, and obviously, yeah. uh, the, the the look of it is clearly influenced by two thousand one. And well, to that, this day, that's, that's Jerry. That's Jerry because two thousand one was the movie that he wished he made yeah. because he really he really uh, respected the quality of the visuals of the movie. Um, it it just trying to do this on a weekly basis and there are shots in the show i mean uh, you know you look at the eagle landing at the nuclear waste site and it's right out of 2001 of course, sure. landing at, at clavius because brian johnson worked on it of course right. uh but that was the goalpost that they were shooting for yeah uh and again because of the production schedule uh brian's crew was able to spend a lot of time experimenting and trying to do things because everything was done in camera. Right. They tried to do as, as few opticals as possible. And the opticals really were the laser beams. Um, I think there was one optical shot in the show. I can't remember it off the top of my hand, but everything else was like, you know, matte paintings and all in camera. So that's why it looks so beautiful yeah, on Blu-ray. On, on latent image where they would roll back and do right. the next pass. Right. Yeah. It holds uh, up so great. And that yeah. whole British aesthetic is, you know, Derek Mennings did it on the best of the Bond movies too. With like yeah. Moonraker, Moonraker, those effects look great because they were a lot of them were done in camera. Well, because he was um, using he was doing the same technique in Moonraker that Brian did on space, the, the multiple exposure stuff. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, Derek, uh, the work he did with UFO was tremendous for what you know what the series. But I mean, the series was an expensive series. No, no mistake that it was uh, probably as expensive as Space 1999. Um, but they had this whole special effects facility left over when they took over the entire puppet stages at Century right. 21. Yeah. Uh, I had been to Bray and seen the stage that Brian worked on. And it's mm -hmm. remarkable they got what they did on this stage because it wasn't all that big to begin with. Yeah. No, yeah. but um, when they did the second series, they, there was a lot more they had to do very quickly. The mm. setups weren't as good, um, but that was simply because time. They 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 made the best of a bad situation, and they still managed to turn out some remarkable effects. Wow. But they they had to let through a few clunkers too. Right. But the production design work is so extraordinary because I mean, the Eagle is probably one of the most iconic right. sci-fi spaceships. I right. mean, next to the Enterprise. You yep. know, it's probably the 78 Galactica and the Eagle that yep. still are the, you know, most gorgeous ships, you know, ever created for television. There's no bad angle on the model. That's the yeah. amazing yeah. thing. And there's so much detail that you could just stare at it for hours and see something different. Um, and they feel real. You know, yeah. it, it doesn't yeah. feel like a sci-fi conceit. It feels like, wow, if this is, you know, the future that NASA would really have something like the Eagle. Yeah, I mean, he, he went to all the trouble to, on the 44s to make spring-loaded feet so that when the Eagle touched down, there was a sense of weight. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so there was a lot of thought that went into things. The fact that Keith Wilson could turn out the design work week to week that he did, because Keith not only did the sets, he did the costumes. Mm -hmm. You know, even though Rudy Gernreich gets credit for designing the Moonbase right. forms, Keith Wilson did everything. He sketched all the aliens. He designed the alien makeup. 
right you know it's remarkable that that you know interiors planets right that so few people i mean when you when you look at credits now and you see that there's a makeup department of 30 people right doing they they had a very lean mean production absolutely very very. and and they and the you know it's remarkable that with a two-week turnaround they still complained about how difficult it was squeezing money out of the budget week to week it's also why there's there's certain uh design aesthetics that are you know identifiable to the series particularly in one you know keith's production design work kind of unifies everything you know the 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 model work that happened from from uh, brian johnson initially through martin bauer you know there's a continuity there there's a style and a and a look to uh everything that that doesn't happen in a, is in a synchronous a way if you do have a team of 30 or 100 people doing the work that they had one person doing basically yeah. did you find that maybe one of the reasons that fred freiberger changed so much even stuff that was working like barry gray's amazing score yeah. and um you know obviously victor bergman's uh, 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 you know was it just so he could put his imprintor on it and 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 say I saved the show, or were there other reasons yeah. that a lot I mean, of this I, stuff? I've met people who actually really like Freiberger, you know, especially if they met him. Apparently, he's a really nice. He was a really nice guy, but his failing for the second season really was that he didn't respect the first season enough to want to try and continue the continuity. He essentially, I, I consider the second season now the reboot of the show right. sure. because it t- almost completely ignores the first season an right? ultimate universe uh, storytelling yeah <laughs> it, it, it really is you know except for the fact that they talk about you know the the great moon being blown out of earth orbit all the stories all the events in the first season are totally ignored um the fact that first episode uses 360 or so days since the accident and, and it was originally scripted like 100 and right times. right yeah. so yeah. The, the, I think he walked in with this attitude that uh, there was nothing good about the first season, mm-hmm. which may have been to appease Abe Mandel. Right. He decided, I'm going to do exactly what you want, what you like, and look how much better the show is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the actors complained about how, you know, all the supporting actors complained about how they weren't respected. You know, um, Zenia cared about was the top of the call sheet. The only people he catered to were Martin and Barbara. That's all he cared about. Yeah. Uh, Xenia walked off the show after a couple of episodes because mm-hmm. she didn't like the way she was being treated and had to be other, moved back. Other than Anton Phillips. Yeah. Right. Anton Phillips also. Uh, Nick, I mean, he basically had to strong arm himself back into the show because mm-hmm. he, he went to a convention, a Star Trek convention in Los Angeles to promote the show, was warmly welcomed. And they said, look at all the fan mail this man is getting. You can't write him off the show. But Freiberger had him originally his character written off the show. Right. So, well, just just think how harsh he would have been on him if his name was Barry. Yeah. Well, so I want that was that's a whole different story. And that was also because they kind of played hardball with paying people, mm-hmm. um, because no matter what they said, the budget was not what it was in the first season. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, even if even if the budget that they promoted was an honest, accurate number, that it was actually higher than for year one, 
even if you believe that, then you have to also take into consideration that there was a massive amount of inflation going on at that point in time. So even yeah. an increased budget still amounted to an overall decrease in you know the the purchasing power of that budget. Well, so, yeah. You know, and then you've got the cast uh, things and, you know, would there was obviously a call made at one point, would Martin and Barbara take a pay cut? The answer was no, they would not. Yeah. And there was no, you know, further uh, arguing of that point. Right. You know, then they had to make other cuts and they they pitched to Barry Morse um, a, uh, a pay decrease that was equivalent to 33 uh, percent. Uh, plus, they were taking away his transportation, which got him from his home in central London out to Pinewood Studios every day. Right. Um, and, you know, he considered that to be his word was derisory. I have yeah. his I have, you know, I had his diaries. Um, so I've got his own personal notes to himself. You know, these were not uh, notes made for public consumption. They were his own private notes. And um you know, it was derisory, the offer. He instructed his agent to to try to negotiate. Um, the agent didn't seem to get anywhere. Barry tried to speak to Jerry Anderson directly, repeatedly was told that Jerry Anderson would call him back, which never happened. And then eventually uh, time was running out and Barry instructed his agent to go ahead and accept the original offer because he wanted to do the show. Wow. And um, at that point, he was his agent was told that his services were no longer required, you know, which was really, really insulting and terrible treatment to to give to, you know, I mean, a, a respected actor, you know, one of your yeah. your, your third lead in the first series. Yeah. Of the show. Your, your third lead and also the star of one of the biggest TV shows in television history at that at, at that time and all sure. time. And yeah. uh, it's just uh, it's 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 horrible the way he was treated. I have to ask you, speaking of actors, because, of course, you know, now it's taken for granted, you know, big feature actors do TV. There's no stigma anymore. What was great about Britain, unlike here, is big feature actors would do television. So you have Christopher Lee and Brian Blessed and uh, all these amazing people doing the show. And that what a great legacy that is as well. Because well, because actors in England wanted to work, right? They, you know, they had the, they had no compunction of doing television or radio. It yeah. was oh, I, I have a job next week. That's ter terrific. If if it's a, a you know a, a major movie, even better. But yeah. as long as I'm working, that's I'm happy. And they didn't look down at the roles. I mean, you know, you could look and say, gee, Christopher Lee, he could have had such a much better part, but. He liked it. He enjoyed it. They, I mean, there was a lot of famous people that went into the first series. Yeah, you know, name actors. I mean, no, not many people knew Paul Jones from Black Sun, but he was he was basically a, a pop star, right? So he was a name in England. But you had a lot of international names. So I know you said there wasn't much creative development on season three because of when the word came down that it was not going forward. Yeah. What do you think? Hey, what would you like to have seen? And hypothetically, what do you think would have happened? Would they have invited Freiberger back? Was Abe happy with the changes? Would they have made another kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, shift in another direction? Would they have gone back to what they were doing for? Like, what do you probably, think might have they happened? They probably would have done something in another direction because 
uh, one of the things that I learned from uh, reading some material about uh, Lou Grade was that Lou believed that it was easier to sell a new show than the second series of an existing show. Mm -hmm. So unless he had a show like uh, Secret Agent or The Saint, which had a network buy and they wanted more material right. naturally, going on a syndicated show, if you had 26, 39 episodes or whatever, they're not interested in buying another 39 because they just keep repeating them. Yeah. That's what essentially killed the Super Marionation series because there was there got to be a point where literally every day the shows were on taking a huge block of programming because they just kept rerunning them over right. and over again. Um, it, wor it worked to Jerry's advantage, that thinking, because every time he had to stop and do a new series, he said, oh, great, we can improve the medium. So it kept pushing you know, the shows further and further technology-wise technology so that you went from you know, string marionettes with fake eyes to perfectly proportioned puppets with real eyes mm -hmm. because and, and the sets look, could have passed for a live action set if there were no puppets on it right um this this is what got them better and better at their craft uh right. because lou kept saying okay we've done the limit let's do a new show right yeah i think I, that um if i can just put in about the where a third season could have gone i mean you know martin landau had said that he felt that they could have gone back to the year one format and and repursued that again, um, brought back Barry Morris, brought back other people. Um, you know, I, I think that one thing that ITC would have had to have done would have been to have let go of the all-consuming belief in the in needing to have an American story editor. You know, I think that that job for year two should have been given to Johnny Byrne. Um, yeah. you know, if Johnny Byrne had been given that. The, the story quality would have been, and if he'd been given the time needed as well, uh, if they'd started production when they should have started production instead of delaying for the very last second, you know, the quality would have been much, much better. If the series had been that much better, who knows? Uh, it could have gone for a third season. If it had gone for a third season, it would have then carried over past uh, Star Wars. And right. then there was this huge wave of science fiction that happened at that point you know, which which drove a whole bunch of new series and lots of movies and stuff. You know, if, if space had carried on for one more year, who knows what could have happened? You know, it, my it, my best guess about that is that I think they would have done another year without Landau and Bain. I think I think that they would have focused on those secondary characters, Maya and uh, and Tony. And uh, I think I think that they could have gotten a reasonable third series out of it that would have a lot been, less money that would have been the spin-off yeah right that yeah i mean yeah I but without it, making it a spin-off yeah. you know just keeping the original show yeah it's po it's possible but you know i'm sure landau had and bain had some kind of approval or input into it based on whatever their contracts were um that you know especially in the in the first season uh chris mentions in our book that he would frequently after spending the day at the studio, go to their home mm -hmm. and sit down and go over scripts and, and potential ideas. Uh, there was always a rumor that Barbara was the one behind the episode, The Last Enemy. She suggested the plot. 
mm-hmm. uh, even though it shows up in a lot of early story things. Uh, you know, a lot a lot of things could have been fed from other people's ideas because they were certainly open to hearing ideas from other people. And of course, that's also why uh, Landau was copied uh, on the paperwork to do with the potential spinoff series. Mm-hmm. Right. It actually wasn't going to have him or Barbara in it. Right. Um, it was going to be based around Maya and uh but but still he was he was included on the discussion because they had you know a, a percentage in the ownership right. Right. so when's the space precinct book coming out <laughs> no you're, 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 what 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 um you know what tell us a little bit what i'm sure the response among space 1990 fans has been great is, is there more to 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 dive into Be, you know i mean now that you've done this you know, has it satiated your desire to write about the show <laughs> the or is there more to explore? The response has been outstanding. You know, David and I were blown away that uh, the, the, this book um, was number one on Amazon in our TV production book category. Nice. Uh, and and it held on there for a long time at number one and number two and number three. It's Amazing. still, do, it's still, still doing very well for the publisher. Honestly. We're still right. number one uh, for for our publisher for their in-house book sales. You know, it's it's awesome. We we joked that actually next time we'd have to you know pick a more obscure subject uh, or a more obscure angle on a more obscure series in order to not hit number one. So maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe space precinct. Yeah, maybe space precinct <laughs> is the one. Um, we we can't say too much about it, but we are working on another book right now. Oh, great. Yeah. Great, great, great. Well, I'm, I'm, I want to congratulate you on uh, finding the correct font for your cover, the uh, braggadocio <laughs> font for the uh, this episode uh, card. Uh, bravo. Because we've uh, we have a very tight connection with uh, typefaces on this show. Oh yeah, no, no. I had I was I had a, a discussion a couple of weeks ago with um, uh, Martin Cater over at at Network because uh-huh. when they did the, um, the 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 recent Stingray, yeah, right. Martin wrote a little article in one of the uh, booklets in there about how he worked really hard to find the Stingray font that appears in the episode mm, title sure. because it turned out to be a font that they made up by hand. Right. And he wrote this two page article about fonts. And I wrote him back and I said, Martin, I'm probably the only person who's writing to tell you that was the first thing I read. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to, I want to mention one thing really quickly before we let you guys go, but, but which of course is the very beginning. You mentioned that you had been involved with this new Blu-ray set, which puts all the, um, compilation movies together um can you talk about uh, the history of those what they because i bet a lot of people who are listening to this have no idea a that they exist maybe they've heard of destination Moonbase alpha maybe but um tell us a little bit about and obviously i assume that it must be selling well on home video for them to do this you know i mean obviously yeah, australia well, just put well, out a new version of yeah. well the ones that network have done they've actually re built them from scratch because Mm. they wanted to do them in high definition versus Mm -hmm. putting out because what happened was I was working independently with Jerry uh, on some projects. He he was using me as a sounding board and there was the Uh Oh, it's the black sun. Yes. Um, He wanted me to uh, uh, I was hoping to end up working with him on some projects. I nearly got to work on a movie called Five Star Five 
uh, before uh, the financing collapsed on it. But um, one of the things I was trying to do was keep his name in the public eye in the United States so that when he came here and looked for money for projects, he could say, look, my things are still playing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, people are still interested. So um, ITC London had made a feature version of The Bringers of Wonder called Destination Mumbai Salva. They took the two episodes, edited them together, created some new opening and closing titles. And the intent was to use to sell this to movie theaters in countries where they really didn't have much uh, availability for syndication. Mm -hmm. They had done that for years, all the way back to the 50s, uh, where they took shows and slapped yeah, the them Man together. from Uncle. Uh, Man from Uncle had been done here, Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Um, the Man from Uncle especially were done theatrical for Europe. Right. Uh, so ITC did this, and they were planning to do another movie from uh, Alien Attack and War Games. Uh, it was called Alien Attack. They did Breakaway and War Games, and they shot this all this extra footage with none of the actors from the show and none of the sets. I think they shot it in somebody's boardroom. <laughs> Far out beyond our world and time lies the ultimate epic encounter with the supreme alien intelligence. Alien ships are approaching the base. Our intentions are not known. Alien attack. A stellar war so huge that only Earth's own moon could lead the human battle fleet against the most overwhelming attack mankind will ever experience. in space at all you have no future the challenge is on the awesome fight for man's very existence in the universe why has all this happened to us professor the gods using us for their sport perhaps alien attack I don't know why they spent the money, but while I was discussing these with Bob Mandel, I pitched him the idea that we should take some of the older shows and edit them together as movies for cable television. Mm -hmm. Because there was a market now, home box office, Showtime, we're all looking for new product. And this was know. after Universal did that with Galactica, right? Because, or was it concurrent with that? Because that was I in 79. It, no, it was after, no, because I was in England in 70. No, in 80, and I saw Mission Galactica, the silent attack yeah. in the theater there. Right. Yeah. And then Galactica, it was interesting because they only had one season for syndication. So they did a, a package which was just cutting all the episodes together into two hour movies. Yeah. Yeah. So you could show them as MOWs instead yeah. of, uh, yeah. Right. As I said, that it, it wasn't a new idea, but the idea of doing the Anderson shows, the mm -hmm. all the puppet shows, was something they had never considered. Right. Uh, so Bob tasked me with picking out the episodes, you know, and I would, I would, um, you know, basically go through the episode guides, say, give me this. And he'd give me 16 mil prints. And on the weekends, we had a screening room at Starlog magazine where I worked and I'd, I'd run the episodes. And eventually when we, when we decided 
on what episodes we use, he'd let me physically cut the prints up on an editing deck and I'd reduce them to the 90 minute uh, uh, time frame that he yeah, wanted. Yeah. And then he would take them to uh, a company that would actually transfer 35 mil footage to video and everything was edited on video. And we sold, we made about 30, about uh, 11 movies. Um, and we made two additional Space 99 movies that go with that. So we had four. Now, the movies had been run, you know, several times on some of the cables channels. They eventually came out on home video, most of them, some on Laserdisc. But they were all from video masters. And in the case of here, they're made from NTSC masters, right. which had less lineage than British PAL system. Yeah. So when people watched them in England, when they came out on videotape there, they look like mud. Yeah. So network had put on, um, they put out Destination Moonbase Alpha on a bonus disc they did for Bringers of Wonder to promote the release of their season uh, two uh, Blu-ray set. But when they got around to doing the UFO movie, they went back to the HD masters they did for their Blu-ray and they cut the movie together and it sold very well, but they just had uh the movie version without the additional music that was tacked mm, on right, because right. they couldn't get it which essentially is my version bob mandel decided he's gonna dress them up and he's gonna put wall-to-wall music all over the place um so when they did the new versions tim mallet of kindred who is responsible for the barry gray albums that were all released by fanderson uh, he edited them from the ground up and he they are now giving you three different presentations they have my version with out the additional music bob mandel's version with the additional music and then they have them in in 16 by 9 with the complete episodes mm -hmm. right so you get basically the uncut versions <laughs> um and they did that with all four space 99 movies and then they actually uh reconstructed the italian spazio 1999 oh, with the ennio morricone score the yeah. ennio morricone score yeah. and that was released six months before the show premiered wow in italy it was and the buck rogers in the 25th century of uh it, it kind of is because the, the weird thing is any thing that i any kind of shame i felt about some of my edits not being really good. <laughs> you saw the entire look at this and i go man. my god this is horrible yeah <laughs> they took three episodes and literally cut each of them down to half an hour wow locked <laughs> them together and the only reason they work reasonably is that because it was dubbed into italian the dialogue was changed slightly to refer to a previous episode wow but the biggest sin they did was when you go from breakaway to the next episode, you have Lon Satin playing Uma in the in the first episode, and then he was fired because he didn't get along with Martin Landau. And then the the delightful Clifton Jones comes in to play Kano, but they still call him Uma. <laughs> As if no one's going to know this black actor changed face. And I'm like, oh yes, God, no. this is horrible. Uh. <laughs> Oh man! And as much as I love Ennio Morricone, and Ennio Morricone uh, synth score yeah. just 
doesn't work. It's so creepy. No, I love Ennio Marconi too, but I'll take that Barry Gray music a hundred yeah, times yeah. Uh, over uh, that I mean, Ennio score. I mean, they released they released the score, the the tracking cues on an album, and it's torture. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That was definitely a money gig for uh, Ennio for sure. Well, oh. guys. This has been so much fun. And yeah. uh, when you do your next book, The Secret Project, you'll have to come back and talk to us about that. I, I assume it, it is a Space 1999 or Space 1999 adjacent property. Yes. Anything possible. Anything. Ah, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. All right. So, sounds good. And and look, congratulations on the success of the book. And obviously, it's one of the new Moonbase Alpha uh, uh, technical manual is, is a delight um as well so um it's amazing that there's so much technology in there to explore i mean it's I was, it was I like was, yeah i was really honored at the work that chris thompson and, and andrew did uh taking what we basically threw together very quickly and did this absolutely gorgeous full color yeah. manual i mean it's it's, it's um, great haven't had that much fun since Franz Joseph, since the days of Franz Joseph. So, well, uh, almost, almost as much fun as when when uh, Rick Sternbach and Michael Kuda did the first Star Trek um, uh, technical manual, and I said to them, "Wow, you guys win the Golden Shovel Award." I don't understand a damn thing, but boy, does it sound good. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's Mike for you. So anyway, well, thank you guys. And uh, uh, that was this episode. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah. see you in the, in the future. Thanks yeah, for time in 1999. Us from Star Trek for a week. Oh, wonderful. Anytime. <laughs> thank you. It's been, it's been great. Thanks, guys. Well, there you go. Everything you want to know about Space 1999 and more. We also learned a bit of the Morse code <laughs> and uh, why he didn't want to return. Yeah, that, that was interesting. I've heard a lot of different stories, but this yeah. is obviously what really happened. Absolutely. So that, was, uh, that, was, that was good. And, and no one-armed man was involved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That'd be funny if they'd remade Space 99 with Tommy Lee Jones as uh, Dr. Bergman. That'd be funny. Yeah. And Who completely inside. Who would you cast as... Uh, Koenig, if you were doing a TV show or movie, Space 1989. Oh, you, you have to you have to go with uh, uh, John Hamm. Oh, John Hamm. That'd be interesting. I mean, he's, I the, see only, that. he's the only, you know, masculine actor we have left. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I don't know who you would get for Barbara Bain, though, mm. uh, for Dr. Russell. Mm. Um, no, you know, you know who you get. You get um, you get Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively. To play. Oh well, that uh, that would be interesting. That, you that know, to get uh, to play them, you need and a married would, couple. It would be quite lively. It would. <laughs> How about Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson? Are they still an item? Yeah, I guess they uh, are. Uh, yeah, this so, week. Yeah, no, no. It's it's. Uh, you're thinking of Kim Kardashian and uh, the, the, what's his name? Uh, yeah. Pete Davidson. Yeah, I yeah. wonder why. Yeah. yeah, he couldn't have been. He couldn't have been uh, a cane ago. No, and I don't think uh, Kim Kardashian would have fit into one of those spacesuits. No, I don't think so. No, that's true. I, I don't. I wouldn't want to see that anyway. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so yeah, I, you know, it's funny. Um, I would love. I, I I don't know why. I don't know why we keep coming back to the show. I, I mean, I gotta tell you, I'm not exactly a huge fan of Space Night. You wouldn't know from listening to this podcast. I mean, look, it's a different thing. It's it's. It is more of the memory of watching it every week than actually watching it every week. It's a it's, memory of a time, yes, when there weren't a hundred 
sci-fi shows right when it's like it was a desert and That's like you're correct. walking through the desert you you know you're looking for it to try and find star trek you know Where'd what a go? tortoise is i'm out here in the day i need my yeah. star trek and then right. all of a sudden you see this oasis right and it's space like that it's like oh there it is but yeah. it's not it's an illusion because you're so parched you're so desperate for the, <laughs> the, the you know and, and 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 it's like you drink it up but uh, it's not as satisfying. It's like, you know, it's not it's like Diet Coke compared to the Coke. Yeah. Look, there are there are aspects of Space 1999 that I absolutely love. Yeah, me too. Um, but I don't love it as a show. It's it's completely different. Like you were talking about I, it, it. I think it it talks to uh, a remembrance of a time, like you said, and uh, and the uh, and who we were at the time. Yeah, because I would watch it on PIX. And I was just like can't wait for star trek like i would watch it but it was like my countdown my pre-show countdown to star trek well it was like I, even though know, i'd seen all the episodes i i was still more excited about seeing the repeat star trek but i, I remember, would watch Space i remember hearing the itc fanfare yeah and yeah. getting all excited and being very disappointed when it turned out to be the muppet show oh see i the opposite i would watch the muppet show and see the itc i would think oh space 1999 it'd be the muppet show and i'd be like no that's the space 1999 music yeah. It's just like when you watch the Fox logo and you expect it to be Star Wars. That's the Fox right. fanfare. But so. it turns out to be MASH. And it turns out to be MASH. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but these guys were really, I think, what interesting facts. And, you know. It's uh, fun speaking to real experts about something. Yes, because sure. when we have Star Trek people on the show, well, you know. Well, a lot of times, a lot of times they're very knowledgeable. Yes, but, but, a lot but, of times. But, uh, but this was certainly like, no nowhere near like this. No, I mean this was just like we could like listen and learn, and it was quite the education, indeed. So okay, well look, this was fun, Darren. Um, and uh, you know we're getting a year closer to me retiring. Every <laughs> right. episode is one closer to my retirement. Well, so I remind you, know, you some nice uh, nice things on the on the interweb on the on the people telling me not to retire, but I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I am. I, okay. I, I appreciate well, good luck. Good luck with that. I'm going to start auditioning replacements next season. We have special right. guests. They'll be my audition. I'll, I'll, I'm going to pick my own replacement. Uh, Blake Lively. Well, okay. I have to, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so we so next season we'll have some, some special guests uh, to audition to, um, to, you know, be candidates to replace me on the show, well, but I'll come back and visit you. We're not, it's not like we're not going to be friends anymore. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, uh, you know, this friendship is based on podcasts. <laughs> Dude, podcasts together. Oh, I didn't realize that. Speaking of which, you know, I went to go see Moonraker last night with Steve Melching, yeah. one of the other 430 movie hosts. That's right. And Firefox. Wow. What a combination. We had a great time. It was I'm awesome. I'm sure you did. I'm sure you yeah, did. Yeah, it was great print. It was great print. A little, little tiny bit faded, but it looked great. Yeah. Was it at the Arrow? No, it was at the, um, it was at New Beverly, which, oh. you know, which I love, but they have the worst seats. The absolute yeah, worst seats. They're horrible. And and uh, I can't believe they spent uh, you know a year and a half renovating that place, but didn't fix the seats. Well, it's a, it's an exact recreation of the theater from the Blob. So you know it's it's not good. Yeah, you got to be a Blob <laughs> to fit in those chairs. But um, you know it was great because they do they did they showed a great Bugs Bunny cartoon. You know, obviously with the Martian with you know sure. uh, which was which was perfectly suited to Moonraker. And then they showed the trailers to Live and Let Die, Man with the Golden Gun. And Spy Love Me, which that was like to me like the highlight of the whole evening, because well, I love go. I love old Bond trailers. Well, of I course. used to watch them as a kid. I had a VHS which had all the trailers up until whatever era it was, and I used to wow. watch that all the time. This explains minutes. a lot. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I love that. I love that VHS. So, um, but, uh, but this, this was good. Next week we'll be t- back talking about um, the Star Trek actually. Oh, well, that'll be a pleasant surprise. You know what episode did really well? I didn't think it would. Our Battlestar Galactica episode. I thought no oh, one was going to listen to that. You know, I'm well, like, oh, whenever we not do non-Star Trek, you know, I figured, you know, but uh, the Galactica well, even, did really well. Even hardcore Star Trek fans like an occasional uh, detour. We sometimes. should do a For All Mankind episode. Well, I need to catch up with watching the okay. show. Then. Okay. Yeah, you should. We should because we gotta just get... wind up. Uh, I'll just wind up doing from the earth to the moon. We could do both. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Well, you know, I, I shouldn't waste any time because, you know, with only one season left, I got to stay focused on the Star Trek. Right. You know, good. So we'll see. Maybe we'll even talk about some 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 things we don't normally talk about next season. Well, or maybe you, not. Who knows where this may go? It could go anywhere. Oh, meanwhile. Um, if you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to come and see us in the flesh. Really? At, well, no, that, not like that, but uh, Star Trek Las Vegas. We're going to be at Star Trek Las Vegas. We're doing a couple of panels, and some of our old friends are going to be there. Scott Mance is going to be there. I, he should be doing a panel on Metamorphosis, but he's not. And then, um, <laughs> of course, the great Ralph Rafe Needleman uh, is coming to do our panel. We're going to do... Uh, Something we normally don't do. We're not big fans of trivia on the show, but because it's Rafe, we're going to do a trivia. And we're well, still figuring out how is, to do it. He is the Organian trivia master. I know it's going to be fun. It's going to be it's going to be really fun. Then we're going to do a traditional Inglorious Trexperts. We're going to talk more about uh, Khan uh, because right. we didn't really have a chance to 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 completely uh, go through all the old scripts. We're going to have some and more we fun have with some that. other surprises in in flux. So we'll yeah, let Darren you know has when some they stuff happen. that he's working on. We'll, uh, so. we'll let you know. And we'll let you know where we eat after the fact. No, we won't. We're not. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Only after the fact. That's what I'm saying. After the fact. I don't oh. want people meeting us at restaurants. No, I don't want stuff. people showing up. I've been very clear the, about this. I love our fans, speedy, but I don't want to hang out. Carts with them. aimed right at your leg. I don't. I don't. I'm. I'm there to. I'm there to see you. I'm there to see Ashley Miller, and um, a couple of people we've made plans to see. But other than that, I don't really want to hang out with other people. I'm a misanthrope. All right. Good. Yeah, just so, making sure. Yeah, I just, you know, I don't worry. I have made plans with other people. We're going to do our thing. We're going to go to our restaurants, although I could not get a reservation. So if someone's out there who works for Steve Wynn, even though, you know, politically I can't stand him, but I love his steak restaurant. Um, uh, if we can get, if you can get us into the Wynn Steakhouse, you know, on the weekend, I, we would totally take that. We would go. We would go. That's what I'm saying, because I could not get a reservation. And I really, I, we went there last year. It was amazing. Yeah. So good. But I do have, a, I have a really good reservation. I've got, I made you guys any of the reservations. You get some good reservations. I, I have no I got reservations, reservations about going. <laughs> That's one of my reservations. I just don't know. I mean, it's like, apparently it's sold out this year, you know, well, and that's, that's too amazing. many people for me. That's too amazing. many carts. Well, we'll see what happens. What do you, I mean, I don't know. I hope it's I hope it's fun. It'll be fun. Don't worry. Just get a cart and be on equal uh, footing with them. I won't. I won't do that. <laughs> I won't do that. I kill people. I literally roll. I, you know, because I'm so impatient. I would just roll over people left and right. You can you can make the stand to not kill today. Today. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, listen. I want to thank all our um, everyone who is involved in making this podcast uh, uh, possible. I want to thank our fans. 
for listening. I want to thank, um, uh, I want you know, and you can tell us what you thought. If you want to hear more Space 1999 or less or whatever, you can on the Twitter at Inglorious Trek on Instagram and Inglorious Trek Experts. I want to thank the, the great Bill Ritter, um, Peter Holmstrom, um, and uh, just uh, everyone for turning out for another fun episode of the Trek Experts. The support has been, it's been truly overwhelming. A lot of, a lot of people really love the show. It's nice. It's nice that it's, they do. It's it's really good. Yeah. And we'll we'll be here. Uh, I have a prediction that we'll be here longer than you think, Mark. I don't know. because I, I got to say this one other thing. I know I said that we weren't taking a hiatus after the finale next week. We may have to take a finale for a couple of weeks. There's a lot coming, a lot of stuff coming down the pike. We actually are, there's some changes with the podcast that we're going to be implementing. So if you suddenly see that the podcast is not being updated, it's only, it'll only be a couple of weeks, but don't uh, worry. We may, we, yeah, don't worry. We're coming back for our fifth season, but we may have to take a couple of weeks off um, before we come back. I know, but you know, there's so many episodes to catch up on or to listen to again. Um, you know, uh, you, you and the, plus the, the season finale is, I think, two and a half hours. So yeah. you, you know, you you could use a couple of weeks to divvy it up. But um, so it, we may not be back right away. We may not be back till October. Don't worry. There's lots but to talk about. Lots. To we're not going anywhere. Just don't be scared. There's no reason to be scared. Don't be afraid. <laughs> so I will because we will be back. So um, anyway, that's that. So I'm just going to say goodbye now. <laughs> um, uh, we'll be back we next time. Say, oh, so on that note, on behalf of Darren, myself, Mark Allman, keep on trekking. And gloriously, of course. Shh. Space 1999 is coming up next on WPIX. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.